This morning we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 22. It is a difficult text, but we pray that the Lord will use it in our lives to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Samuel 22, beginning at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands, and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. To Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is over the king, who is the king's son-in-law, And captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, you are indeed mighty and your ways are marvelous. They are beyond our determining. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would use this, your word, to drive us closer to you, to point our hearts toward heaven, that we might look for the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve him, to bless his name. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, what are we to do with a text like this? What is the purpose of a text like this? It's almost too horrific for words. How do we answer a text from the Lord that describes the triumph of wickedness, that describes an attack on God's people and the danger that they are in? What I think we want to do is to see what it means to be against Jesus Christ. Even in our own lives, so that we can root that out of our lives. If there is any part of us that is against Jesus, we want to root it out. But secondly, we need also to see how God responds to opposition, so that we can be secure and we can have hope knowing God's response to the opposition. And so this morning, I would like us to ask and look at two questions from our text. First, what do we know about antichrists? Those who are against the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we know about them? And then secondly, what do we know about God? What does this incident teach us about the Lord our God? about his ways, about his provision, and about his care for his people. What do we know about Antichrist? And what do we know about God? Let's start by looking at Antichrists. And we bring this up here because Saul is an Antichrist. He is a type of Antichrist. It's very simple. He is against Jesus Christ and his people. The problem is, we have been trained to think in a certain way about Antichrist. We think it's only a matter of prophecy for the future, not something we need to think about now. We think that the Antichrist is only about world domination, that he's involved with politics, and we expect to see nation come against nation in the days of Antichrist. And I think... Perhaps the most deceptive part of this is we think that the Antichrist can only be out there somewhere. 
And if we can just build up big enough walls to protect us from the Antichrist, we'll be safe. But in reality, the Bible talks in a very different way about Antichrist. It tells us that it's not just one person that we should be looking for. To be Antichrist is a personality, it is a mentality, it is a drive of someone to work against Jesus. To to speak of the Antichrist is really to describe those who are opposed to the rule and plan of God. John says, after all, that the essence of the Antichrist is refusing to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the God-man. God come in the flesh to redeem for himself a people. And so, at this time of year, in this season when we are most focused upon the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would do us well to think about those who are opposed to Christ, who deny who he is who see no need for God to come to man, who have no hope and no look for redemption. And it's for this reason that John says that there are many antichrists. He says in 1 John chapter 2, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. And so we have to understand that while there is, in the scripture described, an antichrist of the future, one who will seek to put the death blow to Christ's church, there have been antichrists throughout the days of the Bible and throughout the history of the church. Today, this morning, we see one of them. We see an antichrist who opposes God's people and seeks to destroy them. And it is made all the more shocking because of who this Antichrist is. He's not out there somewhere. He is the very king of Israel, of God's people. He is opposed to God's kingdom and to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the Antichrist in Saul. Now, Saul had seemed to be living a kind of dual life. On the one hand, he was serving God's people as their king. On the other hand, he was constantly seeking to build up his own kingdom. He was more concerned about what he could obtain than the glory of the Lord. And now what we see here this morning is the veil slipping away. We see Saul in his true colors. He has descended to the depths of depravity. And so when we first meet Saul, it's very interesting because you would think at this point in time, Saul would be at peace. After all, as the scene opens, he's sitting up on a height under a tree with his bodyguard, his most trusted men around him. Now, you have to get the image here. Imagine if you lived in Houston And there was no air conditioning. Well, the best place that you could spend a day would be under a huge tree with great shade and the breeze blowing in. There could be no more peaceful or pleasant place in all of the land. And that's where Saul is. 
that you would think that he would have some peace about him. After all, David is on the run. David is no threat to him at this point. He's just trying to stay alive. And there's no one in all of the kingdom that dares speak against Saul. Even his own son, Jonathan, realizes that that's a lost cause. You remember Jonathan tried to convince his father to change his mind, and he got a spear thrown at him for his trouble. So no one is about to speak to Saul. The enemies of Saul, the Philistines, have been beaten back. And the irony is that that's been done in large measure by David and his armies. So Saul should be able to enjoy what he wanted, to be under the tree and to relax. But it is very clear he cannot. And this tells us something about those who are against the Lord Jesus Christ. They are never at peace. They are constantly churning inside. They are constantly worried, fretting. They can find no rest outside of Jesus. Even in the most secure of settings, he's out in the open. He's protected by his men. Even now, still, Saul is not at peace. Now contrast this with David, who's running from place to place, hiding in caves. And what we have here is we know that Saul is not at peace because of a detail we are given. Even in this place, a place of calm, he's still gripping his spear. The instrument of death. And for Saul, you recall, his spear is not just an instrument of battle, it's an instrument of It's a weapon to be used against anyone who contradicts him. He's thrown it at his son-in-law, David. He's thrown it at his own son, Jonathan, the crown prince. So it's obvious that Saul is obsessed and angered. And we then see three things about Saul that I think are indicative of antichrists, of those who are against against God. First, he is filled with fear. Now, notice Saul. He can't sit for five minutes without mentioning a conspiracy. He says, to the closest allies he has, why are you all against me? Why are you all plotting against me? Oh, you want David to come and kill me, don't you? You know, right now, David's lying in wait against me. Now, now we know David's on the run for his life. David's so afraid, he fled to the Philistines. And then he fled to Moab. And he fled to the caves. He doesn't know where to go. David's not lying in wait to attack Saul. We'll actually find out in weeks to come that even when David has the opportunity to hurt Saul, he does not. And yet Saul sees conspiracies everywhere. Everywhere he looks, people are against him. His daughter's against him. His son is against him. His army's against him. The people are against him. Even his closest advisors here, those of the tribe of Benjamin, they are all against him, according to Saul. He thinks everyone is out to destroy him when nothing could be further from the truth. He is gripped by a constant fear. The second thing we see is that Saul thinks everyone around him is motivated by sin just because he is. Do you see how he begins this conversation? Here now, people of Benjamin, 
Will a son of Jesse give you as good of bribes as I give you? Is he going to give you lands and property and put you over men? Nobody gives bribes like Saul. You should know who butters your bread. You see, what's behind that is, Saul is assuming that nothing matters to other people around him but greed. But satisfying their own sinful desires. That loyalty means nothing. That morality means nothing. That God's word means nothing. That friendship means nothing. The only thing that matters is greed. Saul assumes that's the way the whole world works. Because that is what has a grip on his heart. The third thing we see is that Saul abandons anyone who would possibly bring him back to the Lord and to reality. He is deliberately distancing himself from anyone. You can see it in his language. Notice he doesn't say David. He says, son of Jesse. Notice he doesn't say Ahimelech. He says, son of Ahitub. It's his way of using coarse language. Now, you probably have seen this even in your own lives. When you wish to speak to someone and convey a closeness, if you really wish to have a conversation, you call someone by their first name. If you're trying to be a little bit flippant, you might just shout out their last name. You know, that Greco. I don't know about him. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. Or, if it's even worse, you might use a a paraphrase. You know, I don't know about that guy. You know, he did go to so-and-so college. And you know about those kind of people. You see, it's a distancing with language. And Saul is doing this intentionally. And we have to be aware of this because we can fall prey to this temptation. Because when people come to us and seek to bring us back to the Lord, it is the spirit of Antichrist that says, get away from me. I don't want to hear you. Don't talk about the Bible to me. Don't try to make things right. Get out of my sight. That's a spirit of Antichrist. We don't want to be with the Lord. We want to resist those who would bring us back to him. And so what Saul has done is he has surrounded himself with basically a bunch of yes men. Who will only do what he says. Now the interesting thing is, is we'll see in just a moment that they won't. But he thinks he has surrounded himself with complete yes men. But notice also how quickly Saul goes from thinking to action. The mind of Antichrist is gripped by fear, by hatred. But that hatred acts out. He comes and he asks, what is going on here? And Doeg says, I'll tell you what's going on here. The son of Jesse. Now you better use the same kind of language Saul uses if you want to be in his good graces. You know. The guy who's bad, the son of Jesse, I saw that he came to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech gave him food, and he gave him a sword, and you're not going to believe it, he inquired of the Lord for him. Now, you could just imagine this sets Saul off. Now, the Benjamites were smart enough 
that when Saul was in full-fledged rant mode, they were busy looking at the ground. They didn't want to say anything. Because as soon as you say something, Saul might turn on you, and you might get the business end of a spear. But Doeg doesn't have any shame at all. He's an Edomite. And he says exactly what Saul wants to hear. Now, look just not at what he says, but at what he fails to say. He doesn't tell Saul that David said to Ahimelech he was on a mission from Saul. He doesn't say that Ahimelech came to him trembling and asked, why are you here? He leaves all of that out to paint Ahimelech in the worst possible light. And so Saul jumps immediately. He says, get Ahimelech and all of the priests here in front of me. You can just imagine he's fuming. This is not going to be a dispassionate trial. And he starts right with an accusation. He says, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of the Lord, of, of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day? He starts right with an accusation. Now, stop for a moment and think. Saul is the king of Israel. The king is responsible for carrying out the laws of the land, right? One of the main laws of the land found in Deuteronomy 19 is that you shall not accept a charge except by two or three witnesses. Now, I don't know about you. My math is not as good as my wife's. But Doeg plus nobody makes one. Not two. Not three. And Saul has just... Cast aside the law of God in his anger and his desire to attack. Now, Himelech's response is reasonable. He says, wait a minute, king. David's like your best servant. You're the one that gave him your daughter as a wife, not me. It's your son that's friends with him, not me. He's so faithful. And by the way, is this the first time that I've ever inquired of the Lord for him? This is an ongoing thing. Why would I possibly refuse the king's best servant help? Now, he finishes off by saying, I don't know anything about this. This conspiracy you're bringing up, I don't know big or small. And his response is very reasonable and measured. But Saul's response is quick. It is an overreaction. He is overcome by his fear and his hatred. And what we see here is those who are gripped with the spirit of Antichrist are not reasonable. They don't want to do the right thing. They do not try to figure out what is happening. He makes an immediate pronouncement. You're dead. You and everybody in your family. There's no more witnesses. There's no more questioning. He's in a complete rage. And we see how irrational and hateful he is. Because he says to his closest advisors, you remember the yes men? He says, go and kill them. And they all just simply look at the ground. Now, when you're in a place where your yes men say no, That's trouble. That's where Saul is right now. 
And you would think he might stop for a moment and rethink what's going on. But no, his hatred spreads even greater. Any resistance to his will is met with more action and more hatred. And he turns to Doeg, the Edomite. Now, we are told over and over again that Doeg is the Edomite. Do you wonder why the Bible does this? It's like you would think they could just tell us once and then use his name and we would remember. But there's a reason why Doeg is consistently called the Edomite. It's because the Edomites were historical enemies of Israel. They had attacked Israel on their way back from Egypt. They were descended from Esau. They were cursed for their actions against Israel. And so what we are to see here from our text is that Saul turns to a hated enemy of Israel to kill the priests of Israel. Does that make any sense at all? It's like bizarro world. But what is happening here is Saul is showing his true nature. He is anti-Christ. He is anti-the Lord. He is anti-God's people. And he rises to a fury to see that they are wiped out because the very existence of the priests is a threat to Saul. They remind him of the Lord and his word. They remind him of the judgment that God has pronounced Against him. And so he wants them wiped out because remember, this is all about Saul. He's worried about his kingdom. And in his hatred, we see his true heart. When Doeg is the only one who is for you, you're in trouble. And so Doeg goes in and he strikes down Ahimelech. And he strikes down all of the priests. And he puts to the sword the entirety of the town. And there is a great irony here. Because the language that is used is very similar to the language in 1 Samuel 15. You may recall that is when God told Samuel to punish the Amalekites. To put them all to the sword. To kill them all. And it even goes down to the same phrase of oxen and sheep. And what we see here is that Saul hates the ministers of the Lord more than the enemies of the people of God. He would not punish the Amalekites. But he's ready to wipe out the priests and all of their families. And this kind of action should remind us of others we see in the Bible. It should remind us of Pharaoh, who ordered the slaughter of all the Hebrew boys. It should remind us of Balak and Balaam, who sought to destroy all of Israel. It should remind us of Haman, who would not be satisfied until he had killed every Jew. It should remind us of wicked Queen Ataliah, who wanted to wipe out the entire royal family. And it should remind us of that great tyrant, Herod, who sought to wipe out all of the boys to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's the same way of thinking. 
The only difference is in the extent and in the opportunity that they have. And this same spirit of Antichrist is alive and well today. There are many people out there today who want nothing more than to destroy the people of God. But, again, let's think about our own hearts. Are we motivated by fear or paranoia? Do we push away those who are close to us because we want our way? Do we think everyone else around us is motivated by greed or desire? You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to earth not just to break the spirit of Antichrist out there, but to break the spirit of Antichrist in our hearts in here. As we look at the spirit of Antichrist, it puts God in perspective. It lets us what we know lets us know about God. And the first thing we see is that God keeps his word. You see, the actions of the Antichrists are motivated by greed, by power and fear. But there is more than that. They are also in genuine rebellion against God. And so the backdrop of Antichrist allows us to see God at work. And these are the most significant of situations. When we come to this, we wonder, how will God handle the opposition? What will he do? How will he preserve his people? And what we see is the nature of God. We see first and foremost that God does not react to antichrists. He is in complete control at all times. We are tempted to see the enemy and react to them and think God must react as well. But that's actually not what's happening here. And we have proof of it in the text. You see, when the horror of the event plays out, we are struck on the completeness of the destruction. Everyone in the town, except one man, we see in verse 20, escapes. And this seems almost like a miracle. How does that come about? I want you to stop for a minute and think about a similar description. About a similar description of destruction. Do you remember Eli? Do you remember his sons, Hophni and Phinehas? There was a judgment that God handed down on them for their disobedience and their blasphemy. And it sounded like this. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. 1 Samuel 2. Now stop for a minute. How many men escaped? One. Exactly as prophesied. How was all of Eli's house put to death? By the sword. Just as he prophesied. 
You see, what is going on here is God is in complete control. Even the butchery that Doeg does at Saul's command is fulfilling the word of God. God is not reacting to this. It's fulfilling his judgment. Fifty years later, God is ensuring that his word will come to pass. And it comes to pass through the evil of Doeg and Saul. Now, we should not say that Saul and Doeg are some kind of robots or automatons, that God is to blame for what they're doing. No, they are filled with greed, with hatred, and they act wickedly. But even in their most wicked actions, even in their desires to destroy the people of God, they establish the word of God. Now, this should not surprise us, because this is what God always does. He promises to deliver his people out of Egypt, and he brings a child into Pharaoh's home. Pharaoh declares he will drown all of the babies, and where is the baby saved? In the river. It's when the wicked Jezebel determines to attack and destroy all the prophets of God. God says, I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But perhaps the greatest example of this is found in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that great and mysterious act in which, as Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we see both of these things happening. We see God fulfilling his plan in the death of Jesus Christ, and we see the wickedness of men in putting him to death. And both of these things need to be held in tension. Because God's word will be fulfilled. And not only can the wickedness of men not stop it, the wickedness of men fulfill it. This should give us great hope. Because you see, one of our great fears is that somehow the enemy will overcome us. That God's promises won't be true. They won't be sure. We won't be safe. God can't protect us from what's out there. And what this text tells us is that even the worst that the world can do merely ensures that God is in control. That should give you great hope. God uses even his enemies to establish his people. There's one last encouragement we can have from knowing who God is in the midst of this struggle. The easiest thing for us to do is to see the attacks of the Antichrist. In fact, that's what the enemy of your soul wants you to see. He wants you to see these attacks and he wants you to be fearful. He wants you to be dismayed. He wants you to be discouraged. That's why we have to look to the Lord. When we're caught in the moment, we can think all is lost. There is much of this thinking in the Christian church today. Just because the church and being a Christian is not the same today as it was 25 years ago or 50 years ago, we think the church is on the brink of collapse. Who's going to protect us? Congress won't protect us. The judges won't protect us. The laws won't protect us. The culture won't protect us. Who will protect us? We're lost. 
And we've been looking all over the place except the one place where we are protected, the Lord God himself. God is not caught by surprise. What happens in this situation? Imagine if you were living in this day and age. You would say to yourself, who can handle Saul? He's got all the power and he's not afraid to use it. Better for us to see that's all he has is raw power. He doesn't have the Lord. He doesn't have right on his side. All he has is raw power. Well, how can David help us? He's only got a ragtag group of guys. How can he make himself the king? It's not David's job to make himself the king. The Lord has said that he will establish David's throne forever. And so we see here in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this grief, in the midst of Doeg and Saul being cheered by the slaughter of God's people, what we see is a ray of hope. In verse 20, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitu, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. It looks small, doesn't it? We might say, how can it possibly make a difference? But yet he flees to David and is taken in. And David's reaction is the complete opposite of Saul's. He feels responsible for what has happened. He repents of his actions. He thinks of others and he says, you will be safe with me. And what this is for us, it is a reminder that God always preserves his people. No matter how great the destruction, no matter how dark the time, what God is establishing here is his king and his priest in exile. And they will reign. So don't y'all worry how God's going to fix things and work things out. All you need to know is that no matter how bleak it is, God will maintain his people. He keeps them. This is what God always does. He did this when a mad tyrant tried to destroy every toddler in the town of Bethlehem. Sure that by doing so, he would secure his reign and keep God himself at bay. And yet one escaped. And the kingdom of God went forward and grew in power. Beloved, never doubt the purpose and plan of King Jesus. You know I love Dale Ralph Davis. Let's end with, I think, a quote that we can live on in the midst of trials. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God. But that the kingdom of God will never die. God doesn't promise you a rose garden. He doesn't promise you ease and comfort, but he promises you that his kingdom is everlasting and it will be established. And that, beloved, is enough for you and for me. Let's pray.